All right, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, starting in verse 12, reading to the end of the chapter. Paul writes here, For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one Spirit we were all baptized into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one Spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? If the whole body were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? Now indeed there are many members, yet one body. And the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now you are the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church. First, apostles. Second, prophets. Third, teachers. After that, miracles. Then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Are all workers of miracles? Do all have gifts of healings? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? But earnestly desire the best gifts. And yet I show you a more excellent way. So here we are. 1 Corinthians 12. Uh, just a brief recap from last time. Um, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, 14 is one unit in which Paul discusses the topic of spiritual gifts, and it's part of a larger unit in which Paul is talking about how to conduct yourself in public worship, which starts in chapter 11. He just spends most of the time talking about spiritual gifts, and the reason he spends most of the time talking about spiritual gifts is because the Corinthians were abusing spiritual gifts. How do we know that? Well, we looked at it a little bit briefly last time in chapter 14, verse 26. When Paul here, he spends two and a half chapters kind of laying some foundation, then gets to the problem. And the problem is that they were a chaotic mess in the church. In verse 26, he says, How is it then, brethren, whenever you come together, each of you has a psalm, has a teaching, has a tongue, has a revelation, has an interpretation? Let all things be done for edification. In other words, they weren't being done for edification. They were being done to show off is kind of what it seems like. If anyone speaks in a tongue, let there be two or three, at most three, each in turn. So there again, you get the impression that you had everyone who had the gift of tongues was just kind of blabbering all at once and not in order. If there is no interpretation, let them keep silent in the church. Again, they were not interpreting the tongues. Let two or three prophets speak and let the others judge and so on and so forth. And then in verse 33, it says, For God is not the author of confusion, but of peace. So the Corinthian context of worship was one of confusion, one of chaos. And Paul says that ought not to be. 
Because God is not a God of chaos. He is a God of order who brings order out of chaos. So your worship is a chaotic mess. So we kind of gave you a roadmap to these chapters and said how chapter 12, what we looked at last time, verses 1 through 11, lays the theology, if you will, of spiritual gifts. And then this passage we're going to look at this morning sort of illustrates the point that he makes in chapter 12. But the theology of spiritual gifts can be summarized by looking at verses 7 and verses 11 of chapter 12, where Paul there says, But the manifestation of the Spirit is given to each one for the profit of all. And then he gives a list of some, a representative list of spiritual gifts. And then in verse 11 he says, But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he wills. So the theology here of spiritual gifts is that each one of us has a gifting of the Spirit. Each one has a manifestation of the Spirit that is given to each one of us for what reason? For the profit of all, for the edification of the church, for the building up of the body. And and it's the same Spirit who distributes these gifts. Now again, what you had in Corinth was you had people who were seeing speaking in tongues as the best gift. Because if we, we looked at it last time, we looked at the book of Acts and how the, the, it seems like the gift of tongues was always sort of follows the, the filling of the Spirit. We looked at Pentecost Day in Acts chapter 2 when the, when the church is formed. We looked at Acts chapter 10 when the Spirit comes upon the household of Cornelius. And we looked at Acts chapter 19 when the Spirit comes upon some uh, disciples of John the Baptist in Ephesus, and in each time the Spirit filled these people and they spoke forth in tongues. So the Corinthians here are thinking, tongues is the evidence of the filling of the Spirit. So they valued tongues above everything else. And then prophecy. So those two gifts were being um, valued over all the others to the point where the Corinthians more than likely thought that if you do not speak forth in tongues, you do not have the filling of the Spirit. You are not... Uh, you, you, you aren't, you haven't made it yet. You haven't, you haven't achieved second level Christianity or whatever you have here. And Paul says, no, the Spirit is given to each one of you. you know, there, are no, there are no haves and haves nots in the church. The Spirit is, is manifest in each one of you, and it's the Spirit who distributes these gifts as he sees fit. So that's the theology of spiritual gifts. So now as we come into this passage here this morning, um, verses 12 through 31, he's going to illustrate this idea because he talks about how there are diversities of gifts, but it's the same Spirit who gives them. That's verse 4. Diver- differences of ministries and diversities of activities. And, and the, the spiritual gifts are given to the church and they reflect the unity and diversity that you see in the Trinity. God is one, but you see a diversity in the fact that he is in three persons, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Same thing with the church. The church is one body. There's the unity, but it's a diversity in how we are gifted by the Spirit. So he's going to illustrate that with a very popular illustration that we've seen before, the illustration of the church as a body. We saw this when we looked at uh, this similar passage in Romans 12. We looked at spiritual gifts back when we studied through Romans, and we looked at that passage, and we referenced this one here. But here... Paul expands on the body metaphor to show and to illustrate what's going on in Corinth. So he expands on it 
in the, given the context of what's going on in Corinth, the bickering and the, and the sort of the, um, you know, the, the ones who had tongues looking down at the ones that don't have tongues, and the ones that don't have tongues kind of feeling like they're left out of the body because they don't have tongues. So Paul will expand on that here in this passage as we look at it. Now, I, I just want to say a couple of brief words, and I'll try to keep it really brief. On um, what we talked about last time, uh, we looked at um, the idea of whether or not the miracle or sign gifts continue in the church age or whether or whether or not they have ceased or they continue in the church age. Um, so that's, you know, whether can you believe in continuation or cessation. Those are the, the fancy terms for it. But it's just a way of uh, designating whether or not the miracle gifts, the sign gifts, such as tongues, prophecy, and like miracles, gifts of healing, things like that, whether they continue now in the church or were they pretty much just during the apostolic age. And I argued for the fact that for the most part they have ceased. But I want to be clear, when I say they have ceased, I don't mean to say that you never, ever, ever will see tongue-speaking prophecy or miraculous healings at any point except during the church age, you know, during the apostolic period. Remember, I mean, verse 11 says, the Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one as He wills. So the Spirit, again, remember, He doesn't have to check with me to, to get my okay to do something. The Spirit can do whatever He wants. What I mean to say then, when I say that I kind of believe in cessation, is more that I, I don't think those miracle sign gifts are normative for the church. It's not what you would expect to see normally in the church. And I made that argument last time by looking at where the, the gifts and the miracles cluster in the Bible. They cluster during the time of the Exodus, during the time of the prophets, and during the time of Jesus' ministry and the foundation of the early church. And once the foundation of the early church has been laid, I don't think those sign gifts are normal anymore. I don't mean to say they can't happen. I don't mean to say they won't happen. It just means to say I don't think that's what you should expect. And I think that's where we part ways with our Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters is that they think they continue even now. But I think the, the purpose of these sign gifts is, well, there are signs, right? What do signs do? They point to something, right? The sign is not the reality. They point to the reality. And the reality is that these signs were to show the manifestation of the Spirit and to sort of validate, if you will, the work of the apostles and prophets in laying the foundation. Once the foundation is laid, you don't lay another foundation on it, right? You, you build on it, and you build on it by the normal um, gifts that you see, teaching and helps and administrations and things like that. So I just wanted to clarify that. I, when I say I'm a cessationist, I don't mean to say the Spirit can't be working now like he did in the, in the book of Acts. It's just I don't think what you see in the book of Acts should be normal and you shouldn't, I don't think you should expect that to be the normative way of things nowadays in the church. People will disagree with me on that, and that's okay. But now we move into the passage here this morning. Uh, 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 31, unity and diversity in the body. And on your handout, you've got four points there. And we're going to see in the first section, of course, that we are baptized into the body. We are set into the body. That's the second point by God. We're set into the body. There should be no divisions in the body. And that we're all members in the body. Now, verses 12 through 26 really kind of 
Paul just works this illustration of the body to sort of correct the thinking of the people in Corinth. And then he concludes with some final thoughts in verses 27 to 31. But anyway, let's get moving here. So verses 12 through 14, we are baptized into the body. For as the body is one and has many members, but all the members of that one body being many are one body, so also is Christ. For by one spirit we were all baptized in one, into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. For in fact the body is not one member, but many. So again, he uses this very familiar illustration that the church is a body, and a body is a unity, and a body is made up of what? It's made up of parts. Right? It's not made up of other bodies. Right, You don't have an arm body. You don't have a leg body. Those are parts of your body. They are the, they are the parts that make up the whole. And as we often hear said, right, the whole is greater than the sum of the parts. If you were to, not in a gruesome way, but if you were to like, dismember me and take, you know, dis, you know, take my members apart from my body, they, they, you know, if you would just kind of pile them together, they wouldn't make the body anymore. It's, they make the body because they're united together into this whole called the body. And just as our bodies are one with many members, so also is the church. That is the point Paul is going to make here. He's going to tell the Corinthians, look, you are unified in one body. You are all members of that body, and each member has a particular function to serve the body. And he goes on in verse 13 to say how we were baptized by one spirit. We were all baptized into the one body, whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and have all been made to drink into one spirit. Now, what Paul says there is a rebuke, if you will, to those in the Corinthian church who thought that you only had the baptism of the Holy Spirit if you spoke forth in tongues. Again, going back to those passages in the book of Acts, the Spirit fills a bunch of people, they speak forth in tongues. So to them, that's the baptism of the Spirit. When you are baptized by the Spirit, you show evidence of that by speaking forth in tongues. And Paul here refutes that way of thinking. He says, no, you're all baptized by the Spirit. When you came to Christ, you were baptized by the Spirit. It is the baptism of the Spirit that brings you into Christ. You can keep your finger here and look over to Romans 6. Romans 6, verses 3 through 5. And in Romans 6, Paul here tells the Roman church, or do you not know that as many of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the fathers, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection." So Paul is using the phrase there, baptism, not to signify water baptism, but to signify how the Spirit unites us to Christ. And we are so united to Christ that when Christ died to sin, we died to sin. When Christ was raised to newness of life, we too were raised to newness of life. It is is to show how we are 
united to Christ. It is to talk about our union with Christ. And it is to show how we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, resurrection. So Paul here uses baptism to indicate how we are all united to Christ in this way. We are all united into his death and into his resurrection. Now our confessional standards also talk about this. Unfortunately, the, the, the verbiage in the Belgian Confession, while good, is not as clear on this point as what the Westminster Confession says. So I just invite you here to give ear as I read uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith. This is chapter 28, if you want to reference. Chapter 28, section 1. You can find this online if you'd like. It's on the, title, it's on the chapter of baptism. And here... Uh, the Westminster Confession of Faith says that baptism is a sacrament of the New Testament ordained by Jesus Christ, not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. Okay, now I just read a lot of words there to you, and I'll break it down a little bit more. But again, if you want the reference, it's Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 28, section 1. And here... Of course, it's a sacrament, which means that it's something that Jesus has ordained. He ordained two ordinances, two sacraments, two rituals, practices, whatever you want to call them, to be practiced in the church. One of them is baptism. The other one is the Lord's Supper. So it is a sacrament of the New Testament, ordained by Christ. So it's something that Christ said. He said this when he commissioned the church to go out and make disciples. He said, how do you make disciples? Well, first, you baptize them. You bring them into the body of Christ. So it's more than that, though, but that's what he says here, that baptism is not only, as we see here, for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church. So that's one sign. If you haven't baptized when you become a member of the church, you should be baptized. That's, that's sort of a, a sign of membership, if you will, uh, the, the price of admission, so to speak. I don't want to take that, don't take that too literally, but the idea is baptism is a sign that shows that we are now united to the visible church, a body like this. But it's also a sign and a seal, and again, that's that language of sacraments, sign and seal. A sign points to something, a seal sort of preserves the promises of whatever it is that is promised by God if you receive them by faith. So it's a sign that points to the covenant of grace. It's a sign that points to our ingrafting in Christ. Think of John chapter 15. What is Jesus? He is the true vine. What are we? We are the branches, and we are ingrafted. We are united to Christ, the life-giving vine, so that we produce fruit only so far as we are connected to the vine, which is Jesus. It is a sign that points to our regeneration. Baptism doesn't produce regeneration. That's an error. That's what the Roman Catholics teach. It is a sign that points to regeneration. So it, is, it, it shows, again, as, you know, as you're put into the water, brought out, it's kind of a sign of that resurrection, regeneration. It is a sign that points to the promise of remission of sins. 
And that's where our confession, Heidelberg is really good on that. It talks about how as filth of the body is washed away by water, so too your sins are washed away by the blood of Christ in baptism. And then finally, as of giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life. We read that in Romans 6. We are baptized into Christ so that we can walk in newness of life. So baptism is something that happens to all believers. We are all not only physically baptized, but we are baptized by the Spirit into the body. It is how the Spirit unites us to Christ through this spiritual baptism, if you will. Now here, Paul's stress is to show that not only are all of them baptized, not just some of them, right? That's what he says in verse 13. By one Spirit, we were some of us baptized. No, all of us baptized into Christ. But also notice, there's, there's no distinction. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. All of have been made to drink. So there's no spiritual haves and have nots in the Christian church. All of us are baptized. Doesn't matter what your station in life is. Doesn't matter what you do for a living. Doesn't matter how much money you have in the bank. Doesn't matter what your nationality is, your gender is, or whatever. We are all baptized. He's pulling language here almost from Galatians 3. And that also refers to baptism too. We're all one at the foot of the cross. We're all one in Christ. There are no distinctions, in a sense, in the Christian church. There are no... You know, first-class citizens, second-class citizens. Now, again, here, the, 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 the stress here is to show how the body with the members shows forth this idea and illustrates this idea of unity and diversity. My arm is a part of me, right? It is a member of my body. And this is why the church has been described as the body of Christ. Christ is what? He is the head. Right? He is the source. He is the, the chief of the church. He is the king of the church. He is the head of the body. And we are the body. The diversity of the members serving the unity of the church. So now he goes forth in verses 15 through 19 to talk about how we are set in the body. Now again, uh, given the Corinthian context, there was divisions between those who had the showy, flashy gifts like tongues and, and, and prophecy and those who did not have those gifts. And, the, and, and what you see here is an illustration that Paul goes on to say, if the foot should say, because I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I'm not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? If the whole body were an eye, where would the hearing be? If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? But now God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as he pleased. And if they were all one member, where would the body be? So what Paul is looking at here is like, okay, so you've got, he's got this illustration of you know, feet complaining. They're saying, if I'm not a hand, I'm not of the body. Or the ear. I'm not an eye, so I'm not of the body. So in other words, if I don't have... If I'm not a flashy part of the body, like the hand or the eye, then I I must not be part of the body. Now, to bring it into the context of the church, if I don't have tongues, if I don't speak in tongues, if I don't prophesy, I must not be part of the body because apparently I don't have that spiritual blessing that everyone keeps talking about. Now, to be sure, right, when you go and you meet somebody, you don't go up and you say, 
wow, what lovely feet you have, right? <laughs> you, may, you may say, what lovely hands you have, but no one goes up and compliments a person's feet. In fact, I, think, I know a lot of people are very self-conscious about their feet. They're gnarly, ugly things, and I, always, I don't show them or anything. And you don't say, oh, what lovely ears you have. Right? You always say, oh, what lovely eyes you have. You have striking eyes. You have penetrating eyes and all that stuff. So you could see, you know, you could sense in the church here, those who have those showy gifts, those who consider themselves eyes or hands, you know, they were the ones that were prominent in the church. And the rest, the feet and the, and the ears were like, well, I guess we're not part of the body because we're not like that. And Paul's like, no, you don't, don't complain because you're not an ear or an eye. Don't complain because you're not a hand. You're still part of the body. Because guess what? If everything was an eye, where would hearing be? Right? If you're one big giant floating eye, <laughs> I mean, that's gross. <laughs> that's like you see those in the monster movies, right? You know, it's you know, creature feature back in the day. You know, the big floating eye things. Like, where would hearing be? The point Paul is trying to make here is the body of Christ is unified, but it is not uniform. The body of Christ is unified, it is not uniform. We are not all given the same gift. Maybe to use an illustration you might know, right? Okay, if you have a football team, you don't have 55 quarterbacks on the football team because you wouldn't be able to win with 55 quarterbacks. No one would catch the ball, no one would be able to block. All you could do is just have a bunch of people going back to pass or hand off to nobody. That's what Paul is saying here. It's you're unified, but you're not uniform. You're not all an eye. You're not all a hand. Because if you're all an eye or a hand, then you have no, no hearing, no smelling, no nothing. Again, how well would your body function without sight or hearing or hands or feet? Now, to be sure, there are people who have disabilities, who are blind, who are deaf, who are missing limbs. We don't say they're less of a person, but let's be, let's be honest. If your body is not fully functioning with all of its parts fully functioning, then you're not functioning as designed by the Creator. In order for a body to properly function, it, has to have, it needs all of its parts working together for the unity of the whole. And then he goes on here. Verse 18 is key in this, in this part of the passage here. He's like, look, you feet... You ears who are complaining. God has set the members, each one of them, in the body just as He pleased. If you're a foot, if you're an ear in the body of Christ, God has set you there. And think about that. Just meditate on that for a second. All right? Emmanuel Reformed Church is a manifestation of the body of Christ. As such, we are sort of like a microcosm of the body of Christ. We are also a body. And God has set you here. If you are here at Emmanuel Reformed Church this morning, it is not by accident. It is, it is because God has ordained you to be here at this point in time for a purpose. You have been gifted by God. You serve the body. Use your gifts. You are here because God has set you here. If He wanted you somewhere else, then He would set you somewhere else, right? You are here because God has set you here. And he goes on, it says, if, all, if the body were all one member, where would the body be? The, the whole point is, again, the body functions because it's this diversity. Again, if, if you had no legs, you couldn't walk. If you had no arms, you couldn't pick things up. So you have this, the, you know, the whole body is designed 
by God to work and function as a unity. And the same thing with the church. The church is built together to function as a unity with a diversity of members. So now he goes on and shows that there should be no schisms in the body, verses 20 through 26. But now, indeed, there are many members, yet one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And those members of the body which we think to be less honorable, on these we bestow greater honor. And our unpresentable parts have greater modesty, but our presentable parts have no need. But God composed the body, having given greater honor to that part which lacks it, that there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care for one another. And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. So now here again, just as we saw in the previous section, right? you had the, the, the feet and the ears saying, well, if we're not hands or eyes and we're not part of the body, now you have the eyes cannot say to the hand, well, you're not an eye, so you're not part of the body. Or the head can't say to the feet, well, you're not a head, so you're not part of the body. So now you have the situation in Corinth where those with the flashy gifts are looking at those who don't have them and say, well, you're not part of the body. And Paul says, no, that's not how it works. You cannot say to a lesser, a lesser, I use that in quotes, right? You cannot say to someone who does not have your gift, you're not part of the body. I have no need of you. Because, the, again, the whole thing works together. You know, if an, if you, again, if the eye says, I don't need you, hand, then the, you know, what do you do with no hands? What do you do with no feet? You know, again, you cannot have a body that's all one member. And the more visible, prominent members cannot say to the less visible, prominent members of the church, I have no need of you. Because, as we'll see, these weaker, less Honorable, again I'm using quotes, members serve a vital role in the functioning of the body. Again, everyone sees the head, everyone sees the eyes and the face and the hands. You don't see the internal organs, right? But you need those internal organs. You need your heart, right? You need your lungs, you need your liver, you need your kidneys. If you don't have those parts, well, if you don't have a heart, what are you? You're dead, right? Or you're the Tin Man in Wizard of Oz. You do know that one, right? Okay. <laughs> Right? If you don't have a heart, you're dead. It doesn't matter how good your eyes and hands look if you don't have a heart. You need those parts that are less visible functioning. Weaker, less honorable members serve vital roles. And he goes on even these presentable parts. I'm, presumably he's speaking of like your private parts. You show them modesty, but they're also vital to your body's functioning as well. But again, God composed the body giving greater honor to that part which lacks it. And more importantly, he says there should be no schism. No schism. Paul spent a great deal of time talking about no divisions in the church back in the early parts. And we talked about how the idea of the church being united is, it gives forth a good witness to the world. If the church is you know, bickering and, and has schisms and all these divisions, it puts forth a bad witness to the world. And the same thing, if you have schisms and divisions in the body, the body is not functioning as it should. 
Imagine if you're trying to, you know, you want to walk to Brown's grocery store, so you start walking west from here, but your right leg says, no, 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 I want to go east. You know what I mean? How far are you going to go when your feet are working against each other? You don't, you don't function. You're not moving. Now again, the context in the Corinthian church were those, uh, there were those in the church valuing the gift of tongues and prophecy, and they were kind of disdaining others who did not have those gifts. But there should be no schisms because, again, we are one body and members thereof. Story is told of a man who greatly desired to be a minister, but he did not have the gifts. And he he realized that. That's that's the good part. When you realize you don't have the gifts to be a minister, and and you realize that and you don't pursue that. It's bad when you think you should be a minister and you don't have the gifts and you don't know that. But... He realized he didn't have the gifts to be a minister, but what he did have, the, what he could do, he could make money. This dude was good with investments. He was a wise, shrewd businessman. And what he did was he devoted his entire life to making a fortune that he would then give to the work of foreign missions. Now I ask you, what's more important? The, the missionary who has studied his whole entire life to, to present the gospel to foreign peoples or the person who funds his work so he's able to go to those foreign mission fields and serve. They're, they're, they're both important, right? <laughs> right? I mean, Romans says, how beautiful are the feet who bring good news and how can they preach if they're not sent? Well, if you know, missionaries oftentimes have to sort of work and scrounge and do all kinds of things to build up funds in order to go across. If you've got somebody who can make money and donate that money to the work of foreign missions, he's doing just as vital a work to the church as the person who goes out in the mission field and brings the gospel to um, unchurched people. Now here he goes on, he says, if one member suffers in the body, the members suffer with it. Or if one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. If you stub your toe, how many, you know, we've all stubbed our toes, right? If you stub your toe, your hand is not going to go to your toe and say, ha ha. <laughs> you know, that must really hurt, ha ha. <laughs> no, I mean, I stub my toe, I grab my foot, I hop around the house on one leg saying things I should not say in genteel public, right? Because when your body, when one part of your body is hurt, your entire body suffers for it, right? Or if you're running a race and you win a race, you don't give the award to your legs and feet. You give the award to the person who ran the race. That's what Paul is saying here. Look, when one member of the body suffers, all members suffer with it. When one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. I've used this illustration before, uh, the famous St. Louis Cardinals pitcher of an era gone by, Dizzy Dean. My dad was a Cardinals fan growing up. He loved Dizzy Dean and Stan Musial and those guys. And uh, the story is told of Dizzy Dean, how one time he got turf toe. And if you know what turf toe is, it's like you get a blister on your toe and it peels off. And, and then it's like you get this raw, exposed part on your toe and it hurts like the Dickens. And the problem was it was on his right foot, which is he was a right-handed pitcher, That was the foot he used to plant on the mound, and that was the foot that he used to push off when he threw. Well, because of the pain in his foot, it altered his throwing motion. And as a result of altering his throwing motion, he threw out his arm because everything was out of whack because of a hurt toe. 
when one part of the body suffers, it all suffers. Now, I've been here, again, two and a half years, and I've done my share of funerals, and I'm ready not to do a funeral for a long time, so, you know, stay healthy and everything, but I've done my share of funerals, and when one member of the body suffers, we all suffer, right? I think, I praise God that when, you know, when someone in our church has lost a loved one, we all gather around and we comfort them. We bring consolation to them. We help them out. Same thing when someone rejoices. We all come alongside them and rejoice with them. That is what the body does. And now, real quickly, drag this on for another week. Let's look at the last section here. All members of the body, as Paul concludes, verse 27. Now you're all the body of Christ and members individually. And God has appointed these in the church, first apostles, second prophets, third teachers, after that miracles, then gifts of healings, helps, administrations, varieties of tongues, are all apostles, are all prophets, are all teachers, are all workers of miracles, do all have the gifts of healing, do all speak with tongues, do all interpret, but earnestly desire the best gifts. Paul concludes by saying, look, we are all God-ordained parts of the body in which God has placed us into the church for a purpose that he has given us and ordained us to fulfill. The Spirit has gifted us to fulfill that task that God has put us into the body to serve. And he goes on in verses 28 through, well, just verse 28, again to list some giftings to give you an example of how God has put you into the body of Christ. He's like, look, some of you are apostles. Some are prophets, some are teachers, some work miracles, some speak in tongues, some have the gift of helps, administrations, so on and so forth. Again, God has distributed these gifts in the body for the service of the body. And he goes on in verses 29 and 30 to ask a series of rhetorical questions, all of which the answer to them is no. Are all apostles? No. Are all prophets? No, so on and so forth. And more importantly, for their uh, situation here in Corinth, do all speak in tongues? No. See, the Corinthians thought that if you spoke in tongues, that was, you made it. You had received the blessing of the Spirit, and you've shown forth the baptism of the Holy Spirit by speaking in tongues. And Paul says, look, not every one of you who has been gifted by the Spirit speaks in tongues. Do all interpret? No. Then he goes on to say, but earnestly desire the best gifts. And this is a foreshadow of what he'll talk about in chapter 14. But he's going to talk about love in chapter 13. But that phrase there, earnestly desire the best gifts, there's a bit of an interpretive challenge here. And the reason there's an interpretive challenge here is because that word earnestly desires, one word in the Greek, it can be interpreted either as a command, in other words, you earnestly desire the greater gifts, or it can be interpreted as a statement of fact, an indicative. You are earnestly desiring the greater gifts. And we don't know exactly. Obviously, the New King James interprets it as a command. I'm guessing the ESV interprets it as a command. Um, I think it makes more sense to interpret it as an indicative, as a statement of fact. Because what were the, Corinthi what were the Corinthians doing? Well, they were all desiring to speak in tongues and prophesy. They were all desiring the best gifts. 
And they were disdaining those who did not have the best gifts. And Paul, in a sense, I think this is like a rebuke. He's saying, look, you are earnestly desiring these best gifts. And I'm going to show you a better way. I'm going to show you a more excellent way. And what is that more excellent way? Well, you're going to have to come back next week to find out. So there, I've whet your appetite. But the more excellent way is love. I'll give you a hint. The more excellent way is love. Because it doesn't matter how gifted you are, right? If you don't have love and all your tongue speaking and prophesying doesn't matter, you're just a noisemaker. If, you're, if, you, if, you give, if you give liberally, but you don't have love, you're nothing. It profits you nothing. That's what we'll look at next week. And we'll wrap up here because we are at time.